Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Quick note before we begin, the Finding Genius Foundation, as part of the Finding Genius Podcast, has recently completed a book about understanding viruses. So the creation of this book was to interview 100 virologists, ask them a lot of deep, difficult questions, take the most difficult questions, and then re-interview the top 25 or so and ask them the hardest questions I could think of. And we compiled that all into a book. So you'll see question and four or five experts' answers. Question, four or five experts' answers. There's about 30 questions in the book. I think it's a great read for the layperson and for the researcher. It talks about a lot of speculation in the world of viruses, such as are they alive or not, and why is it important? Uh, why do viruses go latent or hidden or ineffective or sit in a person or an animal or another creature for weeks, months, years? and then suddenly become virulent and affect that person. Uh, so there's a lot of really provocative questions in the book. It's now on Amazon. So if you go to Amazon and type in Finding Genius, you'll see the book on viruses. It's also on Kindle. The Audible version is in production and should be ready in approximately a month. But if you want to go and order it now, uh, you can do so again by going to Amazon or Kindle or go, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org and go to Publications. There's an opportunity as well to get the transcripts of all the interviews and to hear the original interviews themselves. If we had put them all together, the book would be about a thousand pages, but we condensed them down to make it juicy and concise and tight and very interesting. So I hope you'll check out the book. Uh, we're now working on one about cancer, but this is going to be our goal is uh, three times a year to come out with these masterclass books that I think will inspire new scientific research. And I hope you'll check it out. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius podcast now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Claudia Hussinator. I hope that I pronounced your name properly. She's at Louisiana State University. She's a professor of entomology. And we're going to talk about the uh, Deepwater Horizon oil spill and horseflies as a bioindicator, I guess, of the health of, uh, of the Gulf. So, Claudia, thanks for coming. Tell me about your, your work, your research. Okay, well, as you said right now, I'm the Paul K. Adams Professor of Urban Entomology at LSU, but... My career path meandered through different fields and countries. So in a nutshell, I started research as a student tracking capacalis, that's kind of a grouse through German Alps. Slightly different, huh? Transition from field work to genetic studies happened when my supervisor got a grant to describe population genetic structure of termites in East Africa with the opportunity to do field work in Kenya and Zanzibar. So I said, I have no idea about genetics. I have no idea about termites. And he said, you can learn. So I did. And this then started me on the path of developing ever more sophisticated methods to describe population genetic structure, to solve questions about family structure, colony size, invasion routes of termites, and so on. And once live in nice places, so that got me traveling around the world with postdoc in Hawaii and traveled to Australia and China. And finally, in 2003, I got the position at LSU, 
working with a federally funded Operation Full Stop, saving the French quarter in Orleans from the invasive Formosan subterranean termite. So I used my population genetic methods to delineate termite colonies, figure out colony size and foraging and swarming, and if the treatment actually killed the termite colony. And that would have been the rest of my career, but funds dried up in 2010. And the same year, the Deepwater Horizon oil spill happened in the Gulf of Mexico. So I transferred the genetic profiling methods I used for tracing population genetics of termites to assessing the impact of the oil spill on bioindicator species in Louisiana marshes. So, okay, so after the Deepwater Horizon spill, I know that it affected the water itself. And I guess there was a lot of, you know, birds and other animals that had oil on them. And I'm sure it killed God knows how many of them. But what does the horsefly have to do with this? Yeah, as you said, the acute oiling caused the visible impacts on the birds. So these horrible pictures that we saw of the birds and the turtles and the marine mammals, and it was horrible. But also it had impact on insects. So people that worked in the marsh noticed right away that the insect population was reduced in oiled areas because yeah, I guess the insects were not bugging them as much. So my colleague at the Department of Entomology of the LSU Ag Center, Lane Foyle, and I started thinking, what insects would be good models to measure the impact of the oil spill? So we needed a native species that completes its entire life cycle in the marsh, instead of just looking at a transient visitor. We needed a species that is highly visible, easy to catch, and easy to identify to the species level so that we don't compare apples and oranges. So we proposed to test the salt marsh greenhead horsefly, Tabanus nicovitatus, as bioindicators of marsh health after the oil spill, because this horsefly is native to the coastal marsh from Texas all the way up to Nova Scotia. And its larvae develops three to nine months as top predators in the marsh soil. So just imagine fierce-looking worm-like maggots with sharp cutting blades as mouth parts. And they are like the little lions in the marsh. So they prey on small animals in the soil and also on little fishes. And they also eat each other. They are cannibalistic. And as predators, their abundance reflects the health of the invertebrate food web around them in the mud of the tidal marshes. So if there is no prey, there is no predator. And with all these criteria for a bioindicator fulfilled, we devised methods to measure the impact of the oil spill on horseflies. So what the horseflies, are they, they just hang out on horses or do they hang out on other creatures? Like, I don't think they would be... I don't know, a lot of horses hanging around the Gulf, oh. are they? Yeah, well, just come and fish the marsh for a while, and you will know that they also hang out around people. So it's basically warm-blooded animals. So a horsefly, in order to lay eggs, needs a blood meal from a mammal. So that is why they attack us and get our blood. Well, why are they called horseflies? Because they're like as big as a horse, or do they... Well, they're not quite as as big as a horse, but they like to feed on horses too. And well, I've ridden horses when I was a little younger. And when a horsefly bites a horse, it can make your horse buck and run for the hills. So yeah, they bother horses and other mammals. They feed on on people? Like, who who do they, kind of animals do they feed on primarily? 
down in the marsh, cows. And people too. So whatever they can get their mandibles into. Are there, is there a disease that they cause? You know, they're feeding, so they're getting a blood meal, but are they spitting back any blood in? Are there yeah. any parasites no. that come back into the person from the, the meal? Not the species that we are working with. So that is the good thing about our green head horsefly. This one does not um, transmit any disease. There are other horsefly species that cause anemia in horses and so on, but not here. What are the horseflies an indicator of? Is it the more horseflies, the better, the worse, the fewer horseflies? I mean, what, is, what have you noticed about them that tells you something is different in a localized area due to the oil spill? Yes. So... Well, after the oil spill, we compared population abundance, that's basically fly counts, to genetic structure. Because we didn't just want to do the fly counts, because they are just a snapshot in time. But we also wanted to include population genetics, because population genetics reveals patterns and processes of decline and recovery, as well as multi-generational viability and breeding success. And so on. So we compared horsefly population abundance and genetics from oiled and unaffected areas where the oil did not reach. And we followed the fate of populations for six years from immediately after the oil spill in 2010 through 2016. So we caught horseflies, and that's actually not, not easy because horseflies are the fastest insects on the planet. Some species can clock in 90 miles per hour, so they can buzz by you on the interstate. So you can't just catch them easily with a net. So we used trap. Caught them with, uh, with chopsticks, like in the Karate Kid movie? Or is that impossible? Well, if you can do that, you're either awfully lucky or you become very famous on YouTube or TikTok and so on if yeah. you can do that. Well, well actually, so, can, can, they're so fast, can horses swat them? Or are they so fast that they avoid horses or people swatting them? Well, horses can swat them when they are sitting and feeding, but not while they are flying around. Okay, so, I just didn't know if they're so fast that you, know, they, you can't even get rid of them because they're just too fast. No, they sit down to eat. They sit down to eat. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. So, so we, what did you notice? Um, traps. Did they, did they change genetically or did they change epigenetically? What did you notice about the flies over the six years? Comparison? Okay. So immediately after the oil spill, our fly counts showed that the horsefly numbers at unaffected locations were magnitudes higher than at oil locations. So in oil areas, it looked like we had a severe population crash. We had hardly any flies in our traps, nor biting our skin. So, however, over the next five years, the numbers increased again in oiled locations to an almost level we find in unoiled areas. And we also dig, um, dug up larvae from the soil. And after the oil spill, we did not find larvae in oiled areas compared to one to three per sample in non-oiled areas. But six years later we did find larvae at some of the formerly oiled sites comparable to the numbers in control areas. And to interpret these fly count numbers, we first determined if the reduction in population size was severe enough to alter the genetic profile of populations and cause genetic bottlenecks. So catastrophic events reduce population size because individuals die. So rare alleles, that is genetic variants, are lost and genetic diversity is reduced. It's a little bit more complicated in reality, 
but that's the easy explanation without getting too technical. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click Support Us today. Now back to the show. Why, why would genetic diversity be reduced? Because there's less sexual reproduction and less mixing? Yeah. So if you take the individuals out of the population, fewer breeders, just by chance, by stochastical mechanisms, you lose the rare genetic variant. But the allele number, the number of the genetic variants goes down faster than the heterozygosity. So heterozygosity means you have different alleles on corresponding chromosomal loci. So what we measure is the heterozygosity excess for several generations, and that can be used as a signature of a genetic bottleneck. Are there more heterozygous traits than homozygous? Is that why? No, not really. The loci that we use are actually not coding genes. They are, yeah, we call them microsatellites. They are repetitive sequences in the genome. They don't code for genes, but they are good as population genetic markers because you get half of your DNA from mom and half of your DNA from dad. So they reflect the ancestry and the family structure and the fate of the population, basically. And when oh, so after this, after a few mm-hmm. generations, heterozygous traits would would probably disappear, right? But they would be supported by, by I guess, more diversity, more breeding, and they would stay longer in the population. Well, if you have a large population with random mating, your heterozygotes to homozygotes get into a balance. But when you disturb that balance by taking out breeding individuals, killing them with oil, then you get this imbalance where you have reduced allele numbers, but higher heterozygosity. So I know it's a little bit complicated, but I do the best I can to explain it. What was in the stomachs of the horse flies? Did you look? Did their microbiomes change? Again, did the blood meal, if you look, could you see which creatures they were feeding on and which ones they weren't? You know, maybe the composition of the blood meal changed in the microbiome of the flies. Um, we did not look at the microbiome of the adults. What we did look was what the larvae fed, because one hypothesis was that the oil would kill the food web of the larvae and therefore lead to a long-term suppression of the populations. But actually, we did not find that. So we measured the soil biochemistry at our sites, and the oil contamination was patchy. So the oil levels at our sites were just slightly above the background since we sampled at the high tide mark where oil did not reach. So there could have been pockets of uncontaminated soil where larvae could develop. And we sequenced the larval guts and and that revealed that insects were a major food source for larvae. However, we did not detect a lack of major food web components at sites with no larvae. So we think that 
the crash in the adult population led to the disappearance of the larvae and that led to a reduced fly population areas where oil had made landfall for several years until there was enough immigration again to achieve a viable number of breeding individuals in the area to get the fly numbers and the population genetic structure back to normal. I don't know if you have any flies that are preserved, but again, it, it looks like, I bet you looking at the blood meal of the flies, its composition will be different. You know, if they fed on, let's say, horses and cows and people, and all of a sudden you saw like a, a much reduced blood meal coming from cows, you could theorize, okay, the cow population went way down, but the human population and the other populations were fine. So, I, you know, looking at their blood meals, if you could access them, you might see some of that stuff. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yes, that could have happened. That could have happened. So probably if we would have done that, we would have found a lot more human DNA because, of course, there were all the cleanup crews in the marsh and law enforcement and so on. So there was a lot more human activity in the marsh after the oil spill. Yeah, but we did not do that. Have you looked at the microbiome of these flies? Because, again, that probably would have been changed if it's if they're feeding on animals that now have been exposed to oil. The oil probably changed the animal's health pretty dramatically. And then, you know, the flies feed on them. Now they're different. They're getting a different, you know, they're getting stuff in the blood. Maybe that's good or bad for them. And that might change their microbiome, make them sick. Who knows, you know? Yeah, probably blood would be blood regardless where the flies would get the blood from. So I'm not sure if it would have changed the microbiome tremendously. You would just see the host where the flies get the blood from. You would see that in their DNA, in their guts. So you would know what they have munched on. Well, again, like, you know, if, uh, if the creatures that they eat are affected by the oil, that would change the composition of the meal, you know, the blood a little bit of that creature that they're eating. So I just figured that would, uh, that would maybe change them. But again, separately, so has anyone looked at the microbiome of these flies? Has anyone tried no. to see what's in there? No. Well, yeah, maybe it's just an idea to do in the future, you know, but uh, not, not. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, with blood feeding insects, um, the microbiome is not as complicated. With the termites, yeah, we looked at the microbiome and all their symbionts because wood feeding is very difficult for insects. They need a lot of enzymes and a lot of symbionts that help them digest wood. With blood, nah, that's easy, straightforward. So you don't need a lot of microbes or symbionts in your gut to help you with that. It's high energy to eat on blood. So what else uh, were you able to learn from the horse flies? What else did you look at and what did that tell you about the conditions surrounding yeah, the oil people- spoke? Yeah, so all the population genetics that we did, so we first saw that the horseflies in oiled areas suffered a severe genetic bottleneck. So that was consistent with a population crash. That is what I um, talked about, that when you lose breeders in a population, the population goes through a genetic bottleneck and you lose rare alleles. So we found bottlenecks in oiled areas, but no bottlenecks in control areas. However, five years after the oil spill, the bottlenecks in oiled areas started to disappear. And in 2016, we did not see any more bottlenecks. So to find out what mitigated the bottlenecks, we looked in detail at the overall population structure. 
So we assigned hundreds of individual flies from 26 populations collected from 2010 all the way through 2016 to genetic clusters based on the similarity of the genotypes. And immediately after the oil spill, the populations of oiled and non-oiled areas belong to distinctly separated clusters. So there was no gene flow between oiled and non-oiled areas. But over the year, over the years, genetic signatures from populations from oiled regions became more similar to those from non-oiled regions. And we saw flies with genetic signatures from control areas appear in formerly oiled areas. That means we had increasing migration rates into formerly oiled areas as areas recovered, replenishing the lost horsefly population. And since our genetic markers are inherited from both parents, we can also use them to measure several aspects of family and breeding structure and the changes after the oil spill. So in the years immediately after the oil spill, the number of breeding parents was significantly lower in oiled areas, consistent with the crash in adult population and the bottlenecks we found. But in 2016, the number of parents and family groups had significantly increased in formerly oiled areas and were comparable to the numbers in control areas. So in summary, we think that immediately after the oil spill, the adult and larval horsefly population crashed. The population crash in oiled areas left its mark on the genetic structures of tabanid populations with low migration rate, genetic bottlenecks, fewer breeding parents. But finally, in 2016, the population genetic parameters reached levels typical for control areas, which we interpret as recovery. But with all of that, we still were not entirely clear about why the populations crashed. So our original hypothesis was that the summer 2010 adult horsefly population would not be affected immediately after the oil spill, since the larvae of this generation emerged from soil before the oil spill hit, and the adults do not feed on oiled vegetations and blood meats were available. So we were actually hoping that the summer 2010 generation would represent a pre-oil spill reference sample. However, this assumption was wrong. So somehow the adult flies did come into contact with oil. And with diving into the literature, we found research after the first Gulf War, which involved a lot of spilled oil when the Iraqi occupation forces blasted the oil wells and pipelines in the desert of Kuwait, creating oil lakes. And this research showed that polarized light from oil sheen on water attracts insects because it mimics fresh water. So when insects get thirsty, they get trapped in oil because it looks like fresh water. So we think that the acute mortality of our adult tabanids in 2010 was associated with this deadly attraction to oil sheen on water. Yeah, that's very unusual. <laughs> yeah. So the oil, the oil on water attracted a lot more yeah. flies, but what would they have fed on? Or, I mean, do they have a very short window in which they have to eat or they'll die of exhaustion? The species that are we working, that we are working with is actually quite unusual in its life cycle. So the females have to find blood for their second egg batch. The first 
eggs, they actually can lay without any blood meals. That makes them quite good at reproducing. But if they want to have a second batch of eggs, then they need to go and find a blood meal. So a lack of blood meal in immediately um, after they hatched is not a problem because they can still go and lay some eggs. So what, how long has it been since the project's been finished? And what, what are you going to work on now? Like what new hypotheses do you want to test? Are you going to keep working with these flies or are there new creatures now that you need to work on? Yeah, the Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative that funded all the research ended last year in 2020, 10 years after the oil spill. But, well, the good thing is the research initiative left a legacy of baselines and predictive models to be used if, or rather when, another oil spill happens in the future. And also the 10 years of GOMRI, Gulf of Mexico Research Initiative, led to many well-trained student experts in the field that can take the science to the next level in the future. So specifically in terms of our project, Beyond Horseflies and Oil Spills, we use the collection of the physical specimen and the DNA sequences to create inventories of hundreds of species of insects and their food web in the soil of different salinity zones in the marsh. And with this inventory, we have baselines and bioindicators for salinity. And these baselines become important with coastal restoration projects. So these are land building project measures and they include freshwater and sediment diversions from the Mississippi River into the marsh. And they will lower salinity in parts of the marsh. So on the other hand, saltwater intrusion due to sea level rise, sinking land and erosion will increase salinity in other parts. So we can monitor these impacts of the salinity changes on the ecosystem by employing our salinity bioindicator species and our baseline inventory of biodiversity in the marsh. Okay. Yeah, it's amazing you can get all this from from studying something like a, a horse fire. That's really cool. So what's the best way for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? Oh, well, they can just check out our departmental website at the LSU Department of Entomology or read my publications or come to the next talks that I give at meetings and sometimes also in more popular science events. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Claudia, thank you for coming on the podcast. It's uh, Again, it's unusual what oh, we're talking you. about, but very, very cool. Thank you very much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.